You are listening to Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea. I am Wabagger, the infinitely prolonged. I've stopped by to say... <clears throat> Jeffrey John Lesnick, you are a no-good dumbo-nothing. Hi there, and welcome to Digital Watches are a Pretty Neat Idea. This is Brian, and I'm with my friend Jeff, and we'll be talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in all its forms. But before we do that, let's listen to a message from one of our proud sponsors. Introducing the Eccentrica Golumbits chat room and virtual sauna. Log in and flirt with life forms from all over the universe. When you encounter a being, or beings, you would like to connect with, invite them to the virtual sauna. Come here, Daddy. Oh, you look so good. The Eccentrica Golumbitz chat room and virtual sauna is hard to find since it has been banned universally. But you can find it if you know where to look. Hey, Brian, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you? Well, I feel floppy. <laughs> <laughs> floppy? <laughs> yes, I feel floppy because this is the first brand new thing that I got to listen to for the first time. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. But uh, I definitely enjoyed this particular listen, as you will, because obviously we're listening to the audio for the um, radio show that they did. Yes, tertiary phase. I didn't really look into it too much. Do you know it says that it was recorded for 2006? or? Yes, I did very, very little research. But what I did read is that even though it was adapted after Adams' death, mm -hmm. he did leave notes for its adaptation. It was something that was scheduled to be done or that he wanted to do, so he had all kinds of notes on what to do. So they did get to work you know, from his original notes on this one. Really? Because, I mean, they credit him in one of the episodes. I assume that he was alive during part of it. He plays Agrajag. They took his audiobook and put sounds over it, sound effects over his voice. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wondered about that. So you, you anticipated that question and had an answer already, didn't you? <laughs> well, it was something that I wrote in my notes when we got down to Agrajag. But yes, this was recorded after his death. Mm -hmm. But he appears in it in they, something like they said, like a role he was meant to play, <laughs> which was the Agrajag. <laughs> Exactly. So exactly. they they took his performance from the audiobook that he did and somebody made all these sloshing slurping noises over the top of it and between words mm -hmm. because Agrajag's mouth is always cutting himself and all of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he appears post-mortem. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> or posthumously, I guess is the, the There word, you go. Posthumously. <laughs> He appears posthumously. <laughs> <laughs> 
Once again, this is the BBC radio play tertiary phase, which is based on the book Life, the Universe, and Everything. And the story tracks pretty much exactly with Life, the Universe, and Everything. There's not too many deviations that I noticed. I didn't really notice any deviations from the story itself. They uh, they did an, a phenomenal job, in my opinion. It was much better recording. They have a larger uh, group of voice actors working on the project. They included some terrific sound effects and some sound engineering that I really uh, appreciated when I was listening to it. Absolutely. I didn't have any objections to any of the character uh, representation by the voice actors. But I was really impressed with the overall quality of this particular recording. And many, many, many of the voice actors are the original from the original primary and secondary phase. That is correct. Yeah, so you don't have to get used to new voices because they're the ones you're used to. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> there is one new voice. The voice of the book was played by somebody else. Hmm. And... I thought it was very clever what they did because they talk about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and how it's always being updated. And right now it's in its 7 to the power of 16th edition. Mm -hmm. It has a new cover. Right. It is it is drop-proof and has a splash-resistant heat shield. And what I found the clever part, it has a new voice circuit. <laughs> so... If the voice of the guide sounds a little bit different, that's why. <laughs> yeah, and they poke a little fun with that voice circuit thing. I, I did enjoy that, how the voices were jumping around a bit. I didn't think of it as a way of introducing a new voice for the book, but that, that is tricky. Nicely done. Yes, yes. And so just to remind everybody, we're not really going to recount the whole story because we've basically done that in the past couple of episodes so if you don't know the story of life the universe and everything go back and uh listen to oh no not again and again and again <laughs> our podcast about life the universe and everything and then come back here and you're going to hear more about how we felt the adaptation to audio was so we'll talk about parts of it but we're not going to try and make sure we tell a cohesive story of what the story is <laughs> If anything you can we can do can be considered cohesive, then I'm surprised. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they do a little story so far where they recount the beginning of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the destruction of Earth. Yeah, that was another part that I found fascinating about the way they approached this. They approached it in a way that would suggest they knew that they would have new listeners, people who may or may not be familiar with the original story. So there's a lot of parts where they have uh, recapped or reviewed yes. information from the prior books. Right. And something that we didn't know that they put in here is that only hours before the Earth was destroyed by the Vogons, a site in England was <laughs> selected to be a new Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Financial Records Office. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've wondered about that. <laughs> so I like how they just throw these little things in there. It's just kind of funny. Yep. Arthur is still waking up screaming every morning. Mm -hmm. Because Arthur is living two million years before he was born, they tell us about the Haraf Haraf. Yes. Which is a race that lives backwards. Mm -hmm. So I found that part very funny. Mm -hmm. I did too. They said they are the only race known 
to enjoy hangovers because they know a tremendously good evening will ensue. So they just get a hangover out of nowhere, mm-hmm. but they're happy about it because that means... <laughs> they're going to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, and I do get a kick out of the way that Arthur had those conversations with trees, naming them as he does uh, Sycamore 1 and Sycamore 2. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and I'm, Hello, I'm still horse sure chestnut. What- yeah, there you go. And I'm still not sure why he's upset with all the elm trees, but apparently they uh, piss him off. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. He's aggravated by them. Of course, Wildbagger stops by and insults him. Yep. So I want to clarify my understanding of one of your answers from the bonus episode. Sure. About Wildbagger in the 30,000 time seeing movies. Yes. Because I was having difficulty getting it pieced together in my mind, but I think I've got what it was. So Mm -hmm. because it would take just over five Earth years to watch a single 90-minute movie 30,000 times, I couldn't figure out how (laughs) new ones were not created. Right. So the first time I listened to your answer, I thought it was just an explanation of why he wrote the joke. Right. And no, I know why he wrote the joke, but I don't know how the joke actually worked and I didn't really get your meaning so I thought about it and now I want to reiterate it in the entire universe there are new movies being created and released every day of course Wildbagger is darting all over the universe insulting people so he is continuously switching between all the different movie networks it just so happens that every time he switches from one network to another, they are coincidentally, or dare I say, very improbably, showing the same movies he has already seen in the previous sector's networks. So it's not that there aren't any new movies, or that these movie stations aren't playing different movies, it's just that everywhere he goes, it just so happens... Those are the movies that they're playing. (laughs) Well, yeah, certainly that's an excellent explanation. And the other one that I thought about, and, you know, this is just a real speculative uh, guess here, but even here on the Earth, the season for new movies to be released is, you know, a two or three month season. They don't technically release movies every day. They've never done that in the, in the United States anyway. So but they would a, in the universe. Well, that, that's assuming that they haven't picked up on a seasonal concept for the universe. And that's a reasonable request, a reasonable suggestion, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, it all goes back to that same thing. Even when I was, I mean, back in the 80s when we first got all these streaming, well, we didn't call them streaming services back then, but we got all these services they just showed the same thing over and over and over and over oh, yes. and over again. Yes. You know? <laughs> and the other thing I was thinking about is, like, when he leaves Arthur and he's talking to his computer, that is Wowbanger, uh, he says, how long will it take to get to the next victim, if you will? Right. And he's told that it'd be about three weeks. Right. And, oh, my gosh, three weeks of time is a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all he has. Right, exactly. That's all he has to do is watch te- watch movies, you know. <laughs> oh, you were, we were talking about Arthur and his conversations with trees, and I just thought it was funny when 
Wildbanger's ship shows up. Uh, he's talking to a tree next to him, and he's saying, "Oh, I can leave the planet. I'm I'm sorry you can't come with me, but your roots are here." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I thought maybe that would be too close to a pun for you, oh, so I, I wasn't sure if you'd get that one. Well, <laughs> it it was so close to a pun, it was touching right up against it. <laughs> And then he apologizes because he's, you know, he thinks he's insulted the tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just like in the book, Ford shows up after four years and he tells Arthur about Eddie's in the space-time continuum. And to my delight, not once did Arthur ever ask who Eddie was. He always made comments like, oh, is he? Or what's he doing there? But he never said, who's Eddie? Yeah, I figured that you would be happier with this rendition. <laughs> and it does make sense. But, you know, the other thing I was thinking about in defense of Arthur was I kind of went back and reviewed my notes. Arthur has very little interaction with the actual shipboard computer. He may be in the room on a couple of occasions, but he doesn't actually speak to the shipboard computer itself. He speaks to the other people in the room. Yes. Where we hear Eddie, it's Zaphod or Trillian or Ford talking to the computer. So it's a little presumptuous that somebody who had spent about, oh, what did we say, three days, four years prior... Uh, might remember the name of the computer. <laughs> I thought that was a little interesting. Right. But I did love the way they approached it here. I would agree with that 100% if it wasn't for the fact that, for the most part, before the computer said anything, he'd always say, hey, this is Eddie the Shipboard Computer. <laughs> it's like every He prefaced everything he said with mm-hmm. saying his name and announcing who he was. That's correct. I just want to go back for one second and mention that here, uh, Wowbanger even makes a comment that kind of goes back uh, when he's talking to his computer. He says, uh, I've had all the baths that I could usefully have. And the computer <laughs> says, yes, you have. That's true. So now <laughs> it's like every captain of every ship should be like in the bathtub. In the bathtub, yes. That's <laughs> part of part of space travel custom, but... Since we don't space travel, we don't realize that yet. Exactly. And and Wowbanger's deepest hope is that uh, if someone were to trace all of his travels across the universe, that they would spell out a rude word. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they cut to introduce Zaphod and Trillian on the Heart of Gold with the infinite improbability drive. And their relationship is struggling. What I found interesting here is that Trillian is trying to get Zaphod out of his funk by telling him to travel and go somewhere. See the universe. Mm -hmm. In the movie, Arthur's inability to up and go with her was the reason she went off with Zaphod. Mm -hmm. So now it has come full circle, and Zaphod is now the one who won't get up and go. So here they need to do a slight diversion from the book to retcon what happened in the secondary phase radio series that had parts very different from Restaurant at the End of the Universe. So I kind of found that was funny, how Trillian just in her tirade rant goes off and says everything that Zaphod did was a psychotic break or something like that. 
Right. It was a hallucination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all, all of uh, secondary phase was just a hallucination. Mm-hmm. I did think that was interesting. And here in this radio program, they actually refer to the Heart of Gold as a luxury cruiser. Oh. Never thought about it until they mentioned it. Yeah, but that kind of what would it be? <laughs> and then after his spat with Trillian, Zaphod wonders what happened to Marvin. And so they cut to Marvin to tell his story. When we talked about the book, we mentioned ratchet screwdrivers that grew on trees like fruit. Mm-hmm. But we did not talk about the life cycle of the screwdrivers. No, we didn't. No, they retold the story here. And since I really got a kick out of it, I wanted to mention it here. Did you write down the life cycle of the screwdriver? I did not. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) once picked, it needs a dark, dusty drawer in which it can lie undisturbed for years. Then one night, it suddenly hatches, discards its outer skin which crumbles into dust, and it emerges as a totally unidentifiable little metal object with flanges at both ends and a sort of ridge and a sort of hole for a screw. (laughs) So whenever you look in your drawer and you find this little metal piece with flanges and holes that you have no idea what it is or where it came from, and you can't find your ratchet screwdriver, now you know (laughs) they're the same thing (laughs) oh yeah i really love that and the other thing i noticed when they were when ford and arthur were chasing after the sofa or when ford was trying to discuss the situation with arthur right ford's frustration with arthur was very evident in this recording yes and so I really got that feeling, like we talked about before, where Ford and Arthur aren't really friends, but they keep interacting and, and, and socializing together. But Ford's frustration was interesting to hear, and it came out through the dialogue in this radio show. Yes, this is where they used the, the actual radio play, you know, full cast audio, to its advantage, where you could get those nuances where it's harder to on a page. Correct. Another one is Marvin's encounter with the mattress, Zem, mm-hmm. was absolutely fantastic. That whole <laughs> mattress voice and noises and glumps or whatever he was making <laughs> was perfect for an mm-hmm. audio play. Yes, absolutely. That's part of what I was thinking about the sound effects and, and the sound engineering that went into this production. It also demonstrated perfectly how opposite Marvin and the mattresses are. It definitely seemed interesting because Marvin mentions the fact that they've had this conversation over and over and over again. But he <laughs> right. seems willing, actually willing, or maybe even eager to have the conversation again. <laughs> yes, he does. He keeps telling the same conversation or having the same conversation with the same mattress. Well, at least we think it's the same mattress because they're all named Zem. <laughs> so they end this first episode with Trillian being so upset at Zaphod for her sulking that she had Eddie just set random teleport coordinates and he got the hell out of Zaphod's life. Right. She avoided the gravitational pull of Zaphod's ego, as they say. Yes, she did. Yes. <laughs> and then, for some unknown reason, because I guess they had a couple of minutes to kill. 
Zay 5, not knowing that she left, was still talking to her. And Ford's theory about humans and why they are constantly stating the obvious went through his head. So he retold this entire thing about humans and if their mouths don't stop, their brains start working and that kind of thing, which Mm -hmm. I was like, why are you retelling this? This this was in (laughs) primary phase. We all know this story. Exactly. But he's actually having a conversation between his own two heads. I mean, they they have a, having right. a conversation with each other. <laughs> they do that a couple of times, and it's pretty good because the voices are slightly different. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I loved about this is at the end, when they're talking about this particular episode coming to an end, they mentioned that to tune in to the bipodal part of the tertiary phase. <laughs> right. Meaning the second. And they also mentioned, just like you said, that the the mattresses are the only known species that require regular falloping. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to episode two. Mm -hmm. And like most of these episodes, they start with some sort of a recap. And this time they did the circumstances pertaining to the destruction of Earth. And how Arthur was saved. And then they do a little part about the troubles with time travel and the campaign for real time. And there's a little addition here that I really liked. The guide talked about the Cathedral of Callism and how it ended up never being built, just like in the book. And it also mentions that picture postcards became immensely valuable, like they did in the book. Mm -hmm. But here they said, they're blank. blank. (laughs) (laughs) so people are selling blank postcards (laughs) and saying that they're the cathedral (laughs) all right so if you want to do the trouble with time travel then why is the cathedral in the collective memory (laughs) well yeah and you know now that you brought it up i do want to point out something that didn't really dawn on me the first couple times I'd listened to this particular story. I, I couldn't quite figure out when I was listening originally the timeline for Slarty and Arthur. Okay. Because it's weird that Slarty, when he comes back into the story, which he's about to here, right. has um, been going on with his life, I guess. So after Arthur leaves the and Slarty Bark Fast is there by himself. He must then get involved with the, the um, like, what's the name? Real Time? Campaign for Real Time? The Campaign for Real Time at that point. And I guess what we're supposed to assume, which I did not naturally assume, is that Slarty's life went on for the same four or five years or however long it was that Earth, that Arthur was in ancient Earth. So... Slarty's life is going on four or five years later after he meets Arthur. Now he's being instructed to go back to Earth to go to the cricket grounds to get the ashes. Right. And it wasn't real clear. I mean, like I said, someone needs to draw a graph, not not a graph (laughs) necessarily, but some kind of a timeline that jumps around so that I can quite understand exactly how this piece was supposed to come back together. Right. Ford and Arthur and the sofa end up on Lord's Cricket Ground. And another nice usage of this audio play format Mm -hmm. was that during the scene, 
in the background over the police radio you can hear the report of a man named Deodat who had a heart attack. <laughs> because we know that Wildbagger is going to come and insult him, Arthur Philip Deodat, mm-hmm. later. Right. <laughs> but you get to hear on the police radio before that happens that it was announced. Yeah, and I, and I do like some of the dialogue that they've added in here when the policemen are talking to Arthur and Ford, and he says, aren't you two a bit old for student pranks? Right, yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at some point, Ford says, what do you want to do, go get a beer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then they've already done, it's only the beginning of episode two, and they've done in the first episode, in this episode so far, Two recaps of the destruction of Earth. Right. They had Zaphod redo Ford's State the Obvious theory. Mm -hmm. And then they mentioned towels. Right. And the voice of H2G2 comes on about what it says about towels. And it says C C secondary phase. (laughs) And (laughs) And I both laughed. And breathe the sigh of uh, <laughs> sigh of relief because I did not want to listen to another recap of what we've already heard. Yeah, and that's when Ford says to Arthur, uh, or Arthur says to Ford, "Aren't we home and dry?" And Ford says, "We can't even be considered home and vigorously toweling off." <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> they do a very abbreviated description of the somebody else's problem field. And I liked in this little edition when Slarty Bartfast shows up, Arthur cannot remember his name and prompts Ford with saying, it sounded like a Danish chopped sausage. (laughs) (laughs) And here's actually where that my whole understanding of the change in the time frame, because they start talking about the Bistromathics and the ship, Slarty's ship. Right. Mm -hmm. And... They say that it is a new and improved method of traveling through the universe. It's better than the improbability drive. Right. So the bistro math or the bistro that uh, Slarty is driving in or riding around in has been developed after the development of the improbability drive for the heart of gold. Right. So to throw another wrench in your timeline thing... Mm-hmm. It might not be just four years after Slarty's, you know, of he could have been living for 50 years, 60 years, 100 years. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess that's know, true. And then comes back because it's time travel. So it does, you know, Ford only went four years before he time traveled back. Slarty could have been 75 years and then <laughs> back. So yeah. there's no idea. And you're absolutely right. And this is where all these puzzles just don't just, just don't come together very well. Because if you think about it, I mean, you think about one individual lifespan, the time that we're talking about for this event to have taken place is something less than a week in the life of Arthur and Ford. Right. You know, it's it, it, at least that it doesn't appear to be years that this is going on. So at, at some point, Slarty was informed that he should go back and look for these things. So it's almost as if this week could not have occurred yet before (laughs) Slarty started to go back. Because if he had, he'd already know the results and he wouldn't have to go back. And (laughs) right. I don't know. Time travel. (laughs) So here is my first notice of 
the struggles of adapting a book into a radio program and suffering the same problem as the movie, telling half the joke. The first two radio programs are complete because they were original. Everything that was written was written for those radio shows. Slight changes were made for the LP, but nothing was really abbreviated. The books took everything and expanded it. In the book, the scene comparing Slardy to Moses was one of my favorite parts. Right. We talked about that. Yep, we did. It had to be a favorite part of those who adapted it because a Moses reference was included. However, they just said, looking like Moses. And they didn't mention the absence of a fiery smoking mountain, mm-hmm. which in my opinion is what made the joke work and made the joke funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or more accurately, was what made it a joke. <laughs> so <laughs> just saying he looked like Moses doesn't doesn't really make a make a joke. It's that <laughs> addition of why he looked like Moses. So right. Right. they're suffering that same fate, trying to get as many of the jokes in but only telling half of them <laughs> when the cricket men arrive to steal the ashes we are three for three in getting an australian margarine reference so i have to believe it is a funnier joke to someone than i think it is oh it's got to be out there somewhere <laughs> ford and arthur go with slarty on his ship and that scene in the bistro the french bistro and the explanation and demonstration of bistro mathics was done very well and really translates to an audio play. Mm-hmm. Yes, it w- I, I really appreciated that. All right, and then they cut back to Marvin with the mattresses, and we learn that Marvin has an artificial leg that is stuck in the mud, causing him to walk in a small circle. A question that I have and did not ask in our Questionable Answers bonus episode, but I'll ask it to you here, is aren't all robot legs artificial? <laughs> If they would have said peg leg, you're right. It probably would have been more accurate to say uh, not his original artificial leg. Or or a peg leg rather than the articulated leg. But a robot leg is an artificial leg. And I'm wondering if that is really the joke that went over my head like all these times of reading it. No, I think it was, I love the way it comes out there. Makes me think that uh, they thought peg leg would be too uh, derogatory, so they didn't right. want yeah. use that reference. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to insult the peg-legged, you know? <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. We also hear the story of Marvin at the bridge opening mm-hmm. and are reminded of his destructive properties when he is interfaced with other computers. Mm-hmm. And then he's taken away by 11 robots. Right. And they do reference here, which I thought was interesting, is they do reference that Marvin became a celebrity because of his wild escape. And they reference basically his the, that he somehow escaped from the ship that was plunging into the sun. Yes. but they And again, he's a bit melted. Right. They didn't tell the story, but they said that he escaped. So I thought that was interesting. It's one of those things, like you said, that they were able to wrap up and bring around so that he's available for this story right so we get to episode three and they spend a good part of this episode in the room of informational illusions on the Mm -hmm. bistromatic ship and we get to learn about the poet lalifa and the history of cricket 
and the cricket war. The danger of doing the radio drama is that in the book, he went on and on about the musicians of cricket and the songs that are so absolutely pure and beautiful mm-hmm. that if they were written by Paul McCartney, he would rule the world. <laughs> so here, they're trying to perform some of the songs, mm-hmm. and it was nice, yeah. but I didn't fall on the floor and weep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you do that often when you hear McCartney songs? Well, no. No, this was supposed to be better than McCartney. Ah, the the yes, songs yes. written by the cricket people were supposed to mm-hmm. be just overwhelming. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought they were just, you know... Sounded like early 2000 British radio play. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now who's getting hypercritical? I thought it was pretty nice. I like the singing. No, they, there were some fantastic <laughs> harmonies in the, in the song. <laughs> well, you know, and maybe that wasn't one of their hit songs. Maybe that was just one of their average traveling songs, you know? So we, we don't really know the quality of their good songs. This was the only <laughs> song that could be handled by the people of Earth. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we, we wouldn't be able to take one of their beautiful songs. That's right. It would have been too soul-crushing. There was a part about Brocky and Ultra Cricket that was in the book, but neither of us mentioned it when we did the last episode about the book. Mm-hmm. And I liked it, and I wanted to make sure that I pointed it out. Mm-hmm. They build a high wall around the Brockian cricket field so nobody can see anything. Right. And the reason for that is even though that the game is a major spectator sport, the frustration experienced by the audience at not actually being able to see what's going on leads them to imagine that it's a lot more exciting than it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> A crowd that has just watched a rather humdrum game experiences far less life affirmation than a crowd that believes it has just missed the most dramatic event in sporting history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even though they are very similar, there is a storyline difference between the radio shows and the books. Mm-hmm. And they did some retconning when Trillian was talking to Zaphod, but they really need to keep them straight. And so this is what I considered a lazy part in the writing. And it's the part where Zaphod is trying to sneak onto the bridge of the Heart of Gold Mm -hmm. because he heard the whop Mm -hmm. of the cricket ship. In the Christmas episode of the radio show, episode 7, when Zaphod is hijacking the Arturan megafreighter, he does the joke where he says, I want you to imagine that I have an extremely powerful Kilozap blaster in my hand. Right. And that joke doesn't make it into the book, Restaurant at the End of the Universe. So, like we have beaten to death, (laughs) Adams does not let a good idea go to waste. Mm -hmm. So he put the joke in Life, the Universe, and Everything. So when you're reading the books and you get to Life, the Universe, and Everything, this joke is the first time you've heard the joke. If you've not listened to any of the radio series, you haven't heard it. This is the first But even though you're doing this radio play about life, the universe, and everything, (laughs) we've already heard this joke because it was in the beginning of secondary phase. So you don't need to put it in there. You could have put something else in that spot. And so to me, that was just lazy. I don't know if you (laughs) thought about it, but... 
doing a duplicate joke just doesn't make any sense. When they cut so much other stuff out. What's the person's name that they talk about after they talk about the Brachian Ultra Cricket? I mean, you probably didn't make a note of this. I did not. Oh gosh, I wish I, I wish I had written more than I did, but I wrote down when they when he makes a comment about the gentleman's name. Arthur says, "How does he? How do you think he spells that?" Oh yeah, because <laughs> and Ford says, "Big Ten, Little Eight. <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't remember who he was, but yeah, his his name was like a number, like right. with a power, and yeah. Yep, yep. I thought that was pretty funny. There were a couple things in here about when they were interacting with the Bistromathics people, the the fake waiter and stuff. Right. I just got a big kick out of. At one point, Ford gets frustrated and says, oh, Dingo's kidneys. And the waiter says, oh, Dingo's kidneys. You want them? <laughs> it's an expression. <laughs> and then uh, Ford is complaining. He said that the waiter was getting very upset. And Slarty says to him, was he surly or obsequious? And Fort said, both. And then Slarty says, oh, great. That means the Bistromathics are working. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I did think that was funny. And then, of course, here, in addition, is where we have uh, Slarty making the comment that Eddie's in the space-time continuum. And Arthur says, still? Still, yeah, exactly. No, (laughs) who's Eddie? Mm -hmm. But they did, I don't know if you noticed, well, you, you probably did notice that here they added the information that we talked about that was not in the um, audio version of the book that we when we read the book. Okay. Where Slarty talks about his retirement plans. Right. He, he says, and this is even added in addition to what they said in the actual book. But here Slarty says, I had hoped for an easy retirement. I planned to learn the octavental hebiophone right a pleasantly futile task because i don't have the correct number of mouths right <laughs> does they fod? and then he, of course he goes on goes yeah <laughs> and he goes on to talk about how um he wanted to write a book about fjords to set the record wrong right <laughs> uh uh, then I did. I did get a kick out of the scene, and this isn't in, in in the book either, where they talk about the teleporters being in the bathroom. Right, right. And Arthur makes a joke that there's no paper. <laughs> yes. Toilet paper, that is. And Slarty has to remind him he's in a teleport device. <laughs> and Arthur also makes the comment that he has never successfully teleported anywhere. Right. Right, exactly. And then I love this line. (laughs) So right at the end of this episode, Arthur is teleported into the cave. Right. And obviously he doesn't know where he is. And then he starts seeing the um, neon letters. Right. And at one point he looks up and says, three dots. There's a name for that. And of course, the name for that is actually ellipses. Okay. But he says, there's a name for that. Irritating. (laughs) Yeah. But I love the little joke because, of course, there is a name for it. Of course there is. There's a name for everything. (laughs) (laughs) And this is where they mention that Adams is being used as Agrajag's voice. Yes, yes. They put in there. I like that when they did the teleporting, they had to count down together and all pull a chain and then there's the sound of flushing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. 
And at the very end of the episode, the narrator is telling the folks, if, if you have any problems with this episode and you need to talk to someone, you can call us. And, of course, your calls will be charged at the galactic rates. Right. Right. <laughs> and then we get to episode four. And, of course, Arthur did not successfully teleport this time either. He ended up in the Cathedral of Hate with the neon and the flashing dots. And I am so happy that they did use Adam's reading the audiobook for this. And so this part is verbatim to the book. They couldn't really make any changes dialogue-wise. Right. They just had Arthur read the Arthur parts. Mm-hmm. The way Agrajag dies in the book is unclear and can be read two different ways. The audio version gives us no clue as to what happens. It's just a <laughs> scuffle and a noise and a thunk. Exactly. Well, they did a lot more of the um, environmental stuff comes from the conversation. And that's right, extremely apparent in the final episode of this uh, tertiary phase, where they don't yeah. actually have any environmental discussions, but the characters in the story tell the story. Right. So when Arthur escapes from Agrajag, he flies and gets to the party. When describing the party, the looting for supplies is discussed. But this adds a little scene where a farm is raided for Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. The farmer says, we drink only milk. And then you hear a shotgun cock. And the (laughs) farmer says, oh, all right. What vintage. (laughs) Yeah, I love the what vintage line. Like, he's got so much he can choose. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So here is my next example of a bad translation of a joke. I pointed out in the episode about Life, the Universe, and Everything that I liked the joke where after crashed into the party, he was laying on a ledge and mm-hmm. examining himself, looking for injuries. Right. And everywhere he touched, he hurt. And then he finally figured out it was because his it was his hand that was hurting, and he seemed to have sprained his wrist. In this, Arthur is complaining about hurting everywhere he touches, and Ford tells him he sprained his wrist. Yeah. It's like, that was... The most condensed ruining of a joke that you could possibly do. Yeah, again, like I said, you'd have to have all those environmental discussions in the book because the character can't say it himself. I mean, he could, I guess, but that's where the characters that are around him have to describe the narrative rather than letting an environmental discussion go on in the background. Right, but the joke doesn't work that way. Yeah. But I did think this scene was funny, <laughs> where they describe the land over which the party is uh, flying as oh, right, yeah. having seas full of biscuit crumbs. <laughs> right. <laughs> like their seas are full of cookie crumbs everywhere. That just fall off the planet. <laughs> so it's around here that we also learn that there are pirated editions of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that include things that aren't available in the regular edition. Correct. And one of the ones that they mentioned was a banned commercial for Eccentrica Golumbitz's chat room and virtual sauna. (laughs) (laughs) So that's fantastic. Not quite sure how that is going to work, but hey, you know... (laughs) And again, I want to applaud the engineers here for the audio engineering because uh, as Arthur is interacting with the gentleman who won the Rory Award, yes, every time they mention the word 
for which he's won the award, <laughs> they, they've added in a sound effect, drowned out the word. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't use Belgium. No, they, they didn't. They decided that they were going to use the F word. Mm-hmm. And then there was always something that happened. I just loved Belgium. Yeah. Oh, you know. <laughs> and again, this is the radio series. Belgium has been established. And they would not have to use right. up any airtime explaining what Belgium meant because it's already been explained in a previous radio series. So here's where they're... Not only... I was going to say, here's where they're they're confusing the timeline or the storyline of the books versus the radio series. And they think they can't use something because it wasn't in the book. But this isn't the book. It's the radio series. And Belgium's been established. Right. And, and even here in this, and not, not this particular episode, but in a prior episode, Ford is arguing with the waiter and he gets frustrated and uses the word Belgium. Yes. So yes. It, it, it's there. It's out there. It's already in this story. I don't know why they didn't choose to use that. Again, I think they maybe were soft peddling it because they didn't want Belgium to get upset. With that, you know, that could be. <laughs> Again, like the book, Arthur has an altercation with Thor at the party when he's trying to get Trillian to leave with him, and he asks Thor to step outside. And I like that they added a sound effect of Thor falling off the party. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of funny. So now you know that it wasn't just he went outside and they left. He went out and Mm -hmm. plummeted. Thank goodness he had a sea of uh, (laughs) cracker crumbs to land in. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, he can always use his uh, his hammer to fly up in the air, you know. <laughs> yeah, yes, he does. And I want to mention that I misinterpreted it when I read the book. I thought Ford called Arthur a coward when, in fact, Ford was admitting to being a coward. Oh. I asked you that question about would you consider Arthur being a coward? Right. And you said, well, no. I asked that because I thought Ford was calling him a coward. When actually Ford was saying he was too much of a coward to have done anything like that. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So I actually got that straight in my head now, and I feel oh, better because I couldn't figure out why he called Arthur a coward. It didn't make any sense. <laughs> I think I thought this part was really funny because I just happened to be thinking it at the time it was said. Trillian is being all seductive with Arthur and wants to give him advice on being better with the ladies at parties. Right. And he's like, well, what is that? And she says, laundering. (laughs) And in reading something somewhere, I found out that in the books, it isn't until Life, the Universe, and Everything that Arthur is said to be in his dressing gown and pajamas. Mm -hmm. That is not mentioned in either of the first two books. They used it in the TV show because they thought it would play well. Mm-hmm. But nowhere in the books does it say he's in his pajamas. No. Until this book. Mm. I, I didn't really think about that because, you know, he wakes up. I mean, at the very beginning of the book, he's waking up and getting out of bed. So I'm brushing his teeth. So Yes. Well, that's what everybody... I think they said something like it, that didn't dawn on Adams when he was right. writing this of what he'd be wearing. Right. It just, exactly. What? <laughs> They just wrote the TV show, and he's like, why is he in his pajamas? Like, well, he just got out of bed. Of course, if it had been my life, it would have been an R-rated scene. (laughs) Yes. Insert graphic image here. 
There we go. More graphic images. <laughs> nobody wants to see that. <laughs> no, nobody does. And this is actually the second time they're, well, maybe the third time they've talked about laundry, actually, because way back when um, Slarty is talking about the space-time wash or the wash, uh, Arthur says, uh, what is that, a Vogon laundromat? <laughs> right. So it's used more than once about laundry, which I think is funny. So we're coming up at the end of episode four, beginning of episode five, and Ford can't find his potato crisps. And I liked that they added the special effects sound of Trillian eating potato crisps while the the guide is talking or the room of informational illusions is talking. Mm-hmm. And then in part five, they continued the sound effects of her eating the potato crisps over the room of informational illusions talking about the description of silastic armor fiends of Striderax and why you cannot solve problems just with potatoes. Right. Which is what she's doing. She's exactly. stress eating potato <laughs> chips to solve her problem while they're talking about solving problems with potatoes. Mm-hmm. Yes, don't we all do that, right? Yes. <laughs> After Trillian finished with her research in the Room of Informational Illusions, and in this, she also used the guide. Right. She told Arthur that if the robots were never in the slow time envelope, they would have the technology Cricket had 10 billion years ago. Correct. Okay. So they're like, okay, if these are the Cricket ships from back then, mm-hmm. they've got 10 million year old technology. Mm-hmm. Then she asked what the technology would be like now on Cricket since they have had 10 billion years to develop it. It sounds like she didn't realize that to them it's only been five years. You're right. It does sound that way. Mm-hmm. So I got confused on that. It's like, how did you just watch this thing about cricket in the slow time envelope and not realize that it's only been five years for them, not right. 10 billion? Right. And then I like how they kind of made fun of themselves here. Right after they did a sound effect of the robots unlocking the lock of the wicket key, <laughs> yeah. it was kind of a thunk. <laughs> It said that later editions of the guide include some sound effects to illustrate its more obscure entries. And some of their efforts might have benefited from his team going that extra light year, banging a Megadoto publication souvenir coffee mug on the editor-in-chief's office minibar, <laughs> scarcely cuts the mustard. Mm. And I do love the fact that it's the Philadelphia soundscapes. Yes. As is listed uh, it's, as not, well, it's not quite philadelphia philadelphia it's, Phil- it, yeah exactly yeah not quite philadelphia but it's almost there yep <laughs> and i swore that when i started this podcast even though i had everything available in audio that i was not going to use any sound bites or clips okay however i felt that this had to be heard to be appreciated so they mentioned the guide now uses that company philadelphia soundscapers mm-hmm. for their mm-hmm. sound effects mm-hmm. And they are most famous for their 783,000 bespoke varieties of silence. So I'm going to play two of them they used here. This one and this one. And then they played the updated entry of the unlocking of the lock that the Philadelphia soundscapers used 
And it sounded like the popping of a champagne cork. Oh, yes, cork. followed by <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people screaming. <laughs> right. But the champagne pop was pretty effective. I thought that was funny. Yes, it was. Yeah. And, of course, right after that, you know, Zaphod's ready to go, so he's trying to entice um, Trillian to go with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, he suggests that if they leave, that she could have 49% of the bathrooms. Right. <laughs> they are on the ship. <laughs> I don't get it. I guess he needs the one extra percent for his other head or something. I'm not sure. That that might be. <laughs> or he always has to have the more. He always has to have That's the most. Right. <laughs> he, you know, it, he can't be, oh, it can be 51, 49. He's got to have that. Yeah, there you go. You know, Somebody has to be able to make a decision, right? That's yeah, he was works. president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't even know if it's worth mentioning or not, but did you have any notes about the guns, the cost of the guns? I did not. Okay. So anyway, at this point, Arthur and Ford, are, they have a, a, some guns that they've actually purchased from Zaphod, and they mentioned that uh, Zaphod was able to sell them the guns for below cost. Right. <laughs> and. Arthur wonders how he could afford to do that, and Ford's response is he sells a lot of them. Yeah, so he's he's making it up by selling in quantity, <laughs> but selling them below cost. <laughs> Which I thought it was kind of silly. And they right. also mentioned the Jujanta Ju- sunglasses here. Yes, they do. Again, so that was kind of fun. They go down to the planet of Cricket, and they meet up with some of the people who are not as bad as they thought. And when Zaphod was examining the wreckage, his two heads were talking to each other again, asking rhetorical questions. And that was a scene that really benefited from the audio play. Mm-hmm. That scene where he was discussing the ship and how it was fake, that was really good. And the two heads talking to each other. And then he overhears that all the cricket robots are depressed and sulking. And then he hears Marvin singing. <laughs> A sad little lullaby. Yes. <laughs> I like to count electric sheep. <laughs> yes. How I hate the night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love Marvin. I mean, it, <laughs> they they pull this out, actually, in the next episode, Marvin's line, where he says, don't talk to me about outputs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because, of course, his famous line is, don't talk to me about life. Right. <laughs> right there at the end, I just love the that little outro that they do on the audio. It says, this episode is brought to you by the letter F, gamma, and the hexadecimal number three, cosine D. Bracket to the ninth power. Eighth power. Ninth power. Ninth power. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, more number jokes. Oh, you know, like Sesame Street. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> so we now get to the final episode six, and this one opens with the group in a confrontation with the people of Cricket. Zaphod meets back up with Marvin. He discovers that Marvin has been hooked up to the war computers, and that's the reason that he saved Zaphod. Three times. And while all of the Cricket robots are sulking. Marvin then helped Zaphod monitor Trillian and her meeting with the leaders, and she called them out on everything. She and Arthur go out into the dust cloud, and here we get to listen to Hector orate how everything happened and his motivation behind it. A vibration field disperses Hector, 
as he claims to have fulfilled his function. Just like in the book, Arthur agrees to bring the ashes back to Earth, Mm -hmm. and Prack is mentioned as just happening to be there. (laughs) Well, you know what? I thought about that, too, because I I wrote a note about Prack. I mean... Good, (laughs) because it is a little bit of puzzling, but basically Zaphod tells the computer to, what, add his last score to uh, the game that he was playing to the championships level score and feed that into the improbability drive correct so the ship is again moving under improbable uh the improbability drive so when zaphod says i picked him up on the way here i'm assuming that meant just like picking them up like right like okay arthur and ford were picked up yeah the ship did the it. ship did he it. didn't do it right <laughs> because it was within that improbability ratio that he could actually pick him up as he's flying back to cricket. And it's amazing that Trillian had just heard about him on the news. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. More improbability. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The conversation that they had with Prack was probably accurate and they really used the audio drama to their advantage. But yes, I think it was a little bit over the top. They could have scaled it down a little. (laughs) Yes, his manic laughter was rather manic. Yes, it was. And frequent and and nonstop. (laughs) Sounds like someone I know personally. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. They had the part about grammar being the problem with time travel left over. So they're getting near the end of the last episode. So they just had to throw it in here because they had no other place to put it. Right. (laughs) Arthur tries to return the ashes, and nobody is interested. He does get to bowl at Lord's Cricket Grounds. So that robot scene where he cuts off the head and everything was another bunch of sound effects that was really hard to visualize what was happening. Yeah, and it was even kind of silly because at one point Arthur, I mean, we know the the way they described it in the book, and that was you know, believable because he trips and starts flying and then grabs the bat. Right. And then whacks the head of the robot off. Well, they don't have any of the flying part in this uh, radio show. No. Not at this moment anyway, but he literally like asks the robot for the bat. The robot gives it to him and then he hits his head off. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little goofy. (laughs) So the final post credit line of this episode is probably my favorite joke in this entire phase (laughs) oh man that's the last thing i wrote as notes on my my page here well well like i said because it was the best and because you've been doing all of the post-credit mentionings you can go ahead and talk about this because it was brilliant (laughs) oh man um okay (laughs) are you sure you don't want to do this one because i did all the others no Go ahead. I I talk too much. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So the post credits, they say, for those time travelers who may, uh, you may. No, you got to start with the preceding program. I don't think I wrote, I don't think I wrote my notes very well. The preceding program contains violent scenes of a graphic nature, which may cause offense. Time travelers of a nervous disposition may like to consider listening to something else for the past half hour. <laughs> That's perfect. I didn't write my notes that way. <laughs> so <laughs> No, I just I it's I don't know what it is about his writing. 
Mm-hmm. But you can listen to this two normal sentences and then start to try and transcribe it. And you're like, got to go back and listen. Oh, no, he said this word. It's like all of the words he chooses <laughs> are perfect, but not the words I would have chosen if I wrote it. No, I do that. Oh, gosh. Every time, you know, this note writing is such a challenge with this, you know, as you say, you start to you say, OK, I want to write a note about that. And then you realize that halfway through your note, just like you said, I've written the wrong words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I just listened to it <laughs> a second ago. <laughs> it's quite the challenge, that's for sure. At the end, I think this was a very good adaptation of Life, the Universe, and Everything. I am so happy I have now listened to Tertiary Phase for the first time and second time and third time and fourth <laughs> time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I think this is... Uh... By far one of the best audio renditions that we've listened to throughout this entire process. And I really enjoyed everything that uh, they added in to this particular story as well. Yes. Very consistent with dialogue and the method and the timing that we're used to. I, I felt like I was coming home. You got to hear Douglas's voice again. That's right. That's awesome. All right, so next time we're going to do something a little different, and because it is going to be the 12th episode of the year or of the season, we're going to do a retrospective, and we're just going to kind of talk about some of our memories that we had from recording the previous 11 episodes, and of course the 11 bonus episodes. Oh, so we're going to travel back in time? We are going to travel back in time. (laughs) So get your book of grammar. Oh, it's the past perfect episode. (laughs) It is the past perfect, yes. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I can't wait. And then we might even give you a little preview of some of the episodes that are coming up that won't be as obvious as all of this because we're running out of books and radio shows. (laughs) Yes, this has been awesome. I mean, it's exciting, and I can't wait for the next 12 episodes. All right, so then until next time, say goodbye, Brian. I will say goodbye, Jeff. And to all those folks from Haraf Haraf, I'd like to say hello. Thank you for just tuning in. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Thank you for listening to Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea. Look for us the first Thursday of every month for a full episode. We will also release a bonus episode later in the month. A very special thanks goes out to Luke, Max, Greg, and Tim Lesnick for arranging and performing our opening theme. We would also like to thank our talented friends and family for their voice work on our introductions and commercials. A special thank you this episode goes out to Robert Soa for stopping by with an insult. For this episode, a special thank you to Carly Rounds for portraying two-thirds of Eccentrica Golumbits for our commercial. Visit our website at digitalwatchesareaprettyneatidea.buzzsprout.com where you can find links to all my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy-inspired t-shirt designs. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube as Digital Watches Are a Pretty Neat Idea, on Instagram as Watches Idea Podcast and on Twitter at Watches Idea. If you'd like to contact us, 
Our email is digitalwatchespodcast at gmail.com. This has been a Fruits for Thought production.